Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 67, recorded on June 4th, 2023. This podcast is for entertainment only and is not investing advice. So as I always ask, please do your own homework. All right, well, we've got a lot to cover this week. So we will jump right in, starting with the market update. Stock market closed out the holiday shortened week on a strong note, with the Dow Jones average soaring 700 points for its biggest point gain of the year. Investors cheered the passage of a debt ceiling bill that averted a U.S. default, but the biggest driving factor was May's jobs report, which showed U.S. employers added a seasonally adjusted 339,000 jobs, far more than expected. The data also showed a moderation in year-over-year average hourly earnings growth and a bump up in the unemployment rate to 3.7% from 3.4%, which helped push recession and rate hike fears to the back burner, at least for now. U.S. Treasury yields rose, with the two-year note surging 18 basis points to 4.51%, and the benchmark 10-year yield adding 8 basis points to 3.69%. For the week, the Nasdaq's 2% gain notched the index's sixth straight positive week, while the Dow also added 2% for the week, and the S&P 500 jumped 1.8%. Turning to the weekly performance of the S&P 500 sectors, all 11 ended in the green, led by a whopping 3% jump in consumer discretionary and real estate. Technology took a bit of a breather after a massive recent run-up, though the sector still put in gains of more than 1%. So everything's great. And hopefully it stays that way, but uh, we'll see. Looking ahead to next week, uh, investors head into next week with the debt ceiling crisis resolved for the near term, but we'll need to stay sharp with the May jobs report, resetting expectations on what the game plan is for the Federal Reserve as, as the FOMC meeting on June 13th, 14th approaches. Um, The week will start with some potential ripples in the energy market in the wake of the June 4th and 5th OPEC meeting. The calendar is light for major economic releases with updates on factory orders, consumer credit, and initial jobless claims likely to be the most notable data points. Moving into the weekly Bitcoin news, so the first few articles are more like on policy, I thought were kind of interesting. Uh, This first one here from Coindesk, uh, entitled, Kenya Central Bank Takes Ambivalent Stance on Digital Currency, and uh, this was published on June 2nd. I thought this was interesting because we talk a lot on this uh, podcast about CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, and why we don't really want to see them, and uh, why they're bad, and um, yet a lot of countries are, you know, experimenting with them, and um, they're struggling to get people to adopt them, and so they can't really force people to use them, uh, or they can't can't really get widespread adoption without forcing people to use them, like taking away physical cash or 
making people have to take their government payments, um, whatever, Social Security, that type of stuff, um, in, uh, in that form. So <clears throat> anyway, it's interesting to see when it's not working because uh, we actually hope that that's the case uh, across the world here. So uh, the article goes, starts out, the Central Bank of Kenya said, quote, pain points in the country's payment systems can be addressed by innovations structured around the existing ecosystem and that a central bank digital currency, quote, may not be a compelling priority. In a statement published on Twitter on Friday, the Central Bank said it received more than 100 comments on a consultation it started in February. Respondents came from nine countries and included representatives from commercial banks and institutions. Respondents highlighted benefits of a CBDC such as increased efficiency and also risks including high implementation costs and financial exclusion, it said. The central bank said countries that had issued a CBDC, which is a digital token issued by a central bank, have faced issues that, quote, have had that have hampered implementation and that the recent instability in the crypto market has amplified concerns. Nigeria, for example, has faced issues with adoption while the Bahamas central bank said in May it was working on a strategy to improve CBDC adoption three years after its launch. Billions were wiped out of the crypto market last year during the so-called crypto winter, and market turbulence has, was exacerbated by the collapse of stablecoin issuer Terra and crypto exchange FTX. The allure of the CBDC is fading, the Central Bank of Canada said in a press statement. The bank will continue to monitor developments in CBDCs to inform future assessments. So in sort of a weird turn of events with all the crypto uh, problems of last year, it's uh, kind of thrown up a barrier to uh, countries from issuing central bank digital currencies, which is a good thing. And as long as we remember that there's crypto and there's Bitcoin, um, and that Bitcoin is really what you want to own, not crypto, uh, uh, that would be a good thing. All right, moving on to uh, this article is from Coindesk. This was published on June 2nd. Articles entitled U.S. House Republicans Push for Crypto Oversight with Bill to Make SEC Play Ball. Thought this would be interesting. It's always, uh, there's been a lot of action in the U.S. on crypto regulation and a lot of proposed bills and things of that nature in Congress. And so, uh, it'd be interesting to see what the latest is on that article starts out crypto exchanges would gain a path to registering with the u.s securities and exchange commission and would be able to trade digital securities commodities and stable coins all in one place under a proposal from the republican chairs of the two house of representatives committees trying to hash out a bill the most significant crypto oversight proposal congress has come up with this year the proposed legislation would check a lot of boxes the digital asset sector is clamming, clamoring for, but the draft bill released Friday by the leaders of the House Financial Services Commission and Agriculture Committee hasn't yet drawn Democratic support and comes with caveats, 
including the SEC's ongoing power to determine which assets or securities that would remain under that agency's authority. On the most urgent question, how to tell what's a commodity and what's a security, the discussion draft says any of the regulated crypto firms handling a token or cryptocurrency can make a case that the assets are commodities, but they have to explain in detail how they work and prove that they're truly decentralized by certifying nobody is steering the project or controls more than 20% of assets, and the SEC can challenge that claim if it can produce a detailed analysis demonstrating that the asset belongs in its jurisdiction. For some crypto platforms, though, the designations of which bucket each asset fits into could become less important because an SEC-registered crypto exchange labeled as an alternative trading system, or ATS, would have the ability to set up trading in stablecoins and commodities as well. So those platforms would potentially handle all of a crypto investor's transactions in one place, as long as they also register with the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. For the CFTC, the draft bill would set up a new category of registered business, a digital commodity exchange where certified crypto commodities would trade. The new exchanges would have to comply with the agency's usual protections, including full segregation of customers' assets and ensure they're not vulnerable to market manipulation. And the agency would have a new authority over direct trading of crypto commodities, which had also been a feature of other bills considered by Congress last year. As U.S. oversight currently stands, both the SEC and CFTC have been waging an enforcement battle against crypto companies, including some of the largest trading platforms and any crypto-connected rule efforts at the SEC have moved toward dramatically restricting crypto ties to the traditional financial system. While SEC Chair Gary Gensler insists that the existing securities laws are sufficient, the legislation would force his hand into modernizing the regulations for crypto-specific oversight. But... As a product of negotiations between Representative Patrick McHenry, the chair of the financial panel, and Representative Glenn Thompson, the chair of the Agriculture Committee, this bill doesn't yet represent the needed input from their Democratic counterparts. It is a discussion draft meant to start the conversation, according to a senior policy staff familiar with the legislation who said the chairs are hoping Democrats come up with their own version and the sides can start finding common ground. Here are some of the proposal's other key features. Token projects that are aiming for treatment as commodities would have to go through a certification process with the CFTC, which would include detailed disclosures about their operations. While the agencies work out the joint regulations, the legislation says that existing crypto assets would be free from enforcement actions, a safe harbor that would allow firms and investors to keep trading during what would be a potentially lengthy wait for the SEC and CFTC to finish setting up the industry's new rules. Broker-dealers would also be able to take custody of crypto assets, an issue the agency is already trying to work out with its recent proposed rule to demand registered investment advisors only keep their customer money with so-called qualified custodians. The House Republicans are also calling for studies of decentralized finance and non-fungible tokens, which suggests that regulation of those parts of the crypto economy may be pushed further down the road. 
At this stage, the legislation doesn't include any appropriations, meaning the SEC and CFTC aren't given a new heap of cash for the tremendous increase in work or the major boost in staff probably needed at the commodities agency. The people who worked on the bill said they decided it would be better to leave the money discussion to the regular congressional budget process. And while the committee staffs have been in touch with counterparts in the Senate, nobody can say for sure what Senator Sherrod Brown, the chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, wants to do about crypto. Even if the House finds compromise and passes a bill, it still needs approval in the Senate, where a crypto-critical Brown has remained tight-lipped about his legislative plans. The bill now becomes part of a much larger negotiation, not just with House Democrats and the Senate, but also over how it fits with the other major congressional crypto effort this year, the House Financial Services Committee's dueling drafts of stablecoin bills, one from each party. Lawmakers from both sides have said that dealing with the oversight of stablecoins, which are typically dollar-pegged coins that U.S. regulators have said could pose wider financial stability worries, could be the first crypto accomplishment from Congress. Um, so my take on this is um, it's a good start. Um, regulating exchanges is probably, uh, you know, um, uh, you know where you need to start. Uh, having everything in one place makes a lot of sense um, because a lot of people do move between different assets. Um, putting an end to the uh, this would, it sounds like it would put an end to the project choke point, which is really, you know, basically cutting off the crypto ecosystem from the traditional banking system. That needs to get reversed because people should have the ability uh, to easily, if they want, to buy Bitcoin, let's say, and uh, self-custody that, um, which I think is, to me, the most important takeaway. I think Bitcoin has already been well established as a commodity. Um, all of the other cryptos have yet to be defined as a commodity or security. Many of them are securities because many of them are really controlled and issued by effectively companies um, and and meet the Howey test, which is, uh, you know, um, the rules that you kind of have or the process you kind of have to go to through to assess whether or not something's a security or not. But having a, some kind of a process for determining whether or not a uh, cryptocurrency is a, is a commodity or a security would be important, then it would determine you know, which part of the regulatory uh, organization, whether it's the CFTC or the SEC, would be responsible for managing it. So I think that would be a good thing. I think segregating clients' funds is always a good idea. Uh, that was part of the problem with FTX, of course, was they took all the client's money and lent it to a sister company and then put it into a bunch of bad investments and, and basically the vaporized their funds. And so, um, you know, to prevent, you know, I mean, I think people are going to continue to buy shit coins. I don't think you're going to be able to stop that. The allure is too great. You know, it's like uh, gambling. Um, so people will do that. Uh, people will think there's use cases for them and they'll want to continue to, to be a part of that. And obviously it's still going on to this day. Um, so it's not going to stop. So uh, 
it would be good, a good idea to protect people from from the egregious uh, behavior of you know say a future FTX type of an exchange situation where you know customer funds are just vaporized. Um, so you know, like I said, it's probably a good start, uh, but you know it's got to get through the Senate, and uh, there's there's you know kind of there's the pro crypto bitcoin people and the anti-crypto bitcoin people in congress and and um as much as uh education seems to be sinking in um people have their political uh agenda so uh you know uh, unfortunately the uh you know the results uh might not be what everybody wants um but i think uh, this seems like a reasonable approach, so uh, wish him luck with that. Moving forward, uh, this is also from Coindesk. This is, uh, let's see, it was posted on June 1st. Articles entitled, uh, Bitcoin Miners Gain Support from Texas with Two Bills Passed and One Halted. I think I mentioned back a few episodes ago, uh, kind of went through a lot of the state uh level um legislation uh related to bitcoin at uh, various different states but texas uh, had quite a few on the docket so i think this is kind of a an update on that if you will article starts out texas legislators are throwing their weight behind bitcoin mining with two bills passed in the latest legislative session that are signaling support for the industry and one thwarted for the time being in the past few weeks, two bills, SB 1929 and HB 591, that show support for miners, have made it through the legislative stage and are awaiting Governor Greg Abbott's signature. If signed, they take effect on September 1st. The bill SB 1929 requires miners whose energy capacity is larger than 75 megawatts to register with the Public Utilities Commission of Texas as large loads operators which then shares their data with the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, the grid operator. The bill is in line with the March 2022 interim interconnection process formed by ERCOT's large flexible loads tax task force, which is responsible for drafting policy to manage big electric loads such as Bitcoin miners. Meanwhile, HB 591 was sent to the governor on April 18th and will introduce tax exemptions from companies that put to otherwise put to use otherwise wasted gas, including data centers. These bills signal that Texas remains the jurisdiction of choice for Bitcoin, blockchain, and digital assets, said Lee Bratcher, president of the local industry group, Texas Blockchain Council. The third bill, SB 1751, dubbed by some as the anti-Bitcoin mining bill, in which would have capped the industry's participation in cost-saving demand response programs was stopped at the committee stage. Demand response programs are various schemes in which miners get power credits for curtailing their operations at times of peak energy demand. <clears throat> State Senator Lois Kolkhorst, the bill's lead sponsor, did not respond to Coindesk's request for comment on the story. More miners on the demand response program means more load can be reliably called on to help balance the grid, said Dennis Porter, who leads another industry advocacy group, Satoshi Action Fund, 
We are increasing communication with the PUC and ERCOT, which will improve transparency and publicly available data on mining, which ultimately is good for the industry, he noted. However, the opposition of SB 1751 isn't what defeated it, said Jackie Sawicki, who has brought together hundreds of Texas residents in an activist group called Concerned Citizens of Navarro County. The House just didn't prioritize it, and the session ended, ran out of time, so the bill could be reintroduced in the next session, she said. The next session will start in January of 2025. Bill SB 1751 would have taken the threshold for registering with state grid authorities to 10 megawatts. Texas is setting a standard for how to adopt this new and innovative technology, said Porter. Texas is one of the largest Bitcoin mining hubs in the world due to cheap energy and friendly regulators. As policy on Bitcoin mining at the federal level has lagged, the state, the largest by energy projection in the U.S., is marching on with its own rules. However, it is not the only state that's pro-mining. Legislation protecting mining was passed in Arkansas and Montana. Similar bills in Missouri and Mississippi have died. By contrast, New York imposed a two-year moratorium on new fossil fuel-based Bitcoin mines. Oregon is currently considering legislation that would require data centers, including miners, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Meanwhile, a 30% tax on Bitcoin mining proposed by the Biden administration, and I think we talked about that uh, maybe a week or two ago, appears to have stalled. The tax did not make it into the bill on the debt ceiling, which passed on Wednesday. And according to Representative Warren Davidson, the tax will not will likely not return as part of the U.S. budget. So, and actually, the president signed that um, yesterday. So, uh, no thirty percent Bitcoin mining tax. That would have effectively been a ban on Bitcoin mining in the U.S. because um, Bitcoin mining is pretty low margin business as it is. With the high cost of energy and, and Bitcoin, you know, I think I've read somewhere that it costs ten thousand dollars a coin to mine, and with the price at twenty-seven thousand, and you've got to cover operating costs and you know um, maintenance costs and payroll and everything, it doesn't leave a lot of profit for the miners um, you know, at the current Bitcoin price level and with, with elevated energy costs. So uh, it's a brutal business. Um, only the most efficient you know, producers uh, survive, um, and yet hash rate keeps growing. So that means that, uh, you know, there's still plenty of interest and plenty of uh, uh, mining going on, uh, despite the, uh, uh, you know, th those conditions. So, and then the article finishes up. It says, uh, with policy stagnation at the federal level, the states are stepping up to be the incubators of innovation, TVC's Bratcher said. And so that is certainly one of the most interesting aspects of our of the United States is that, uh, you know, states' rights, <coughs> the federal, um, and the separation and uh, the ability for the states to, to sort of jump in and, and, uh, and do their own thing is... Uh, is really a good thing, especially as it relates to Bitcoin. So um, hats off to Texas. All right, next article here. Uh, this is kind of the last in the, the series of policy updates. This one, um, this is about Tornado Cash. And I think I may have talked about this in the past. Tornado Cash is a coin mixer. It allows you to sort of randomize, anonymize your Bitcoin so that, uh, you know, you have privacy. Um, 
Now, criminals may use that, of course. I mean, anybody can use it. But uh, if you don't want the government to know, uh, you know, how much Bitcoin you have uh, for whatever reason, whether you just don't think it's their business uh, or perhaps you're a criminal, <clears throat> but it's not only criminals that use it. Um, and uh, so anyway, it's that's what a coin mixer is in, in essence. And uh, scrambles up the uh, the history of the the Bitcoin transaction and essentially creates a new uh, a new thread that uh, you know uh, makes it more um, more private. So uh, and uh, anyway, so the government's been going after this particular one. I think they they threw the, the software developer in jail and and they uh, they sanctioned you know. Uh, any outputs from Tornado Cash um, that were hitting any of the other uh, blockchains, and so um, uh, anyway, so it's been you know a subject of debate in the crypto and Bitcoin community, and uh, there's actually a lawsuit going on, and um, so this article is <clears throat> is entitled "Blockchain Association Files Amicus Brief in Coin Center Lawsuit Against U.S. Treasury Over." Tornado Cash sanctions. Uh, the Blockchain Association has filed an amicus brief in an ongoing lawsuit by Think Tank Coin Center against the Treasury Department and its sanctions watchdog, the Office of Foreign Asset Control. In the suit filed last October, Coin Center has alleged that the U.S. Treasury Department's sweeping sanctions against crypto mixer Tornado Cash harmed Americans and their ability to transact privately using the Ethereum network. It's critical to recognize that Tornado Cash is simply a tool, punishing the tool itself simply because it can be used by anyone, including bad actors, runs contrary to the values this country was founded upon, Blockchain Association CEO Kristen Smith said in a statement. Blockchain Association stands with Coin Center advocating for the responsible and lawful use of blockchain technology. Regulatory actions should only be targeted at bad actors who abuse this tool for illegal purposes. The suit was the second that the advocacy group filed against the Treasury Department and the second lawsuit against Treasury over its Tornado Cash sanctions. OFAC sanctioned Tornado Cash last August, saying that the North Korean hackers had laundered hundreds of millions of dollars worth of crypto through the Mixer service since its launch. Approximately 20% of Tornado Cash's overall transaction volume was tied to one hack or another, the federal government alleged. Uh, well, that means 80% of it was legit, so that's kind of interesting, uh, if, if you even believe that number. Um, the crypto industry has vigorously opposed the move, highlighting that OFAC does not normally sanction software. And that the because yeah, they do actually target individuals and businesses. In fact, there's a whole list you have to go through if you're going to do business with somebody, uh, anybody, uh, for any reason, any contract or anything like that. You you have to uh, affirm that they're not on the list because you know, if they are, there's some serious penalties that could come your way as a result. But those are again, it's a list of individuals and businesses that are sanctioned, um, not software. And that Tornado Cash does not have a central operator. There are legitimate uses for individuals to use privacy-enhancing tools like Tornado Cash, the suit claimed, and OFAC sanctions against the privacy mixer, which works by pooling funds to obfuscate the sender of any given transaction. 
mean that these individuals now effectively expose their entire transaction history to anyone looking at the network data. And, you know, from a privacy standpoint, you may not want to know what, you know, people to know what you have. And so if it's easy for them to put it together, um, you know, that's where you might want to use a coin mixer so that it's, it's harder to figure out what your wealth is, because that could be, you know, you could be a target, right? Uh, an order effectively requiring defendants to decriminalize use of the 20 tornado cash addresses would allow plaintiffs to conduct their legitimate activities with some measure of anonymity, use their preferred software tool without fear of penalties, and engage in important expressive associations, the, the suit said. Judicial relief would also serve the public interest by averting harm to Tornado Cash users who are United States persons, to Ethereum as a freedom and privacy enhancing technology, and to an important sector of the economy that depends on Ethereum. And so I forgot this was, uh, this was really linked to Ethereum. But there are uh, other uh, coin mixers that, that uh, you know, support, you know, Bitcoin uh, coin mixing. So the precedent uh, from Tornado Cash, uh, you know, assuming the government is successful in fighting off these lawsuits and, and being able to sanction software is, is really concerning because, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, if software is really speech. And so it's kind of like a violation of freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, one of the most important, I mean, Bitcoin is an open source software network. Noster is an open source communication protocol like Twitter. So there are all these um, freedom technologies and privacy enhancing technologies out there sort of to help the individual uh, combat the centralization and, and uh, surveillance um, uh, state activities that are, that are uh, sort of coming together. And so it's important to for people to be able to have uh, access to these things. So anyway, we'll uh, wish them luck with that. Next article is from Bitcoin Magazine, and we'll get a little bit into moving from policy, um, looking into adoption. So this one's entitled "Looking into the role credit unions can play in Bitcoin adoption." And uh, this was posted on June 2nd. <clears throat> and again, I'll put links to all of these articles in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. So the article says, in a recent interview with Bitcoin Magazine, Chief Lending Officer Chase Larson and CEO Jed Meyer of St. Cloud Financial Credit Union based in Minnesota, discuss their experiences with Bitcoin and their efforts to develop a Bitcoin custody solution at the credit union. Larson shared his personal journey with digital assets starting in 2016 and his realization of the need for accessible resources and education for individuals interested in Bitcoin. He joined the credit union in 2021 and focused on education and connecting people with resources related to cryptocurrency. Meyer emphasized the importance of understanding the material need for Bitcoin services in their community and outlined a strategic four-step approach that prioritizes education and storage, then transactional ability and banking products. 
Meyer highlighted their focus on education as a way to change the narrative around Bitcoin and address the risks and concerns associated with it. Regarding the Bitcoin custody solution, Larson stated that they have been working on developing a product that is currently operational but not yet ready for launch to their 25,000 members. The credit union has been prioritizing education both internally and externally, ensuring that their employees and members understand the intricacies and risks of cryptocurrencies. Uh, they aim to be a reliable partner for their members, offering safe storage options and guidance without advising specific investments. From an educational perspective, we said, let's really start foundational from the ground floor, Larson explained. We're going to walk our members through this high level of education in an effort to, one, help them become more informed, regardless if they own it today, plan to own it or not. We want our members to be well-informed, and then two, for those that choose to get into the space, hopefully they make more informed decisions and understand the risk. And I, by the way, I totally agree with this. This is the, the way that you introduce people to Bitcoin is you give them the tools, you let them educate themselves, and then they have to decide whether or not they want to get into it. And if they do, then, then you know, the next step is figuring out the best way to uh purchase your Bitcoin, and then, of course, self-custody it uh, is the most important thing. But uh, there's many different ways of doing that, too. Article goes on. The interview also touched on their collaborative approach with regulators to ensure responsible implementation of their Bitcoin services. Larson and Meyer believe that education and storage are areas where they can make a significant impact while working within regulatory frameworks. They have engaged with regulators and are in ongoing discussions to incorporate their feedback into the development of policies and procedures. Speaking on the future impact that Bitcoin could have on the traditional finance realm, Meyer said that if you do nothing, I think you're taking more risk as to where this industry is actually headed in the future and how it will actually impact us to a significant degree. And if you don't want to be on the receiving end of how others have developed this, you should probably get involved now. Overall, St. Cloud Financial Credit Union's approach to Bitcoin reflects a commitment to educating their members and working collaboratively with regulators to navigate the evolving landscape of Bitcoin. While self-custody is inherently the most safe method of storing Bitcoin in a world where education on Bitcoin is lacking, credit unions can serve in an educational role. In addition, Innovations like Fedimints could help create custodial solutions that help retain the properties of Bitcoin that make it sovereign money while still ensuring a level of distributed responsibility that makes those involved more comfortable. And I'm going to have to talk more about Fedimints in a future uh, article, but uh, uh, that's a kind of an intriguing uh, development in, in terms of uh, Bitcoin, almost like a Bitcoin bank, you know, where you have people sort of pull the money together, but then there's, you know, some control over uh, releasing of funds. So, you know, there's trade-offs, obviously. Uh, it would allow people to pool resources and then be able to effectively operate like a bank and loan money. Um, but, you know, there's a certain level of trust that, that has to be there with, uh, with uh, the folks that have the control over moving the coins and that sort of thing. So off to save that for a future episode because uh, it is kind of an interesting area. 
Okay, moving on. Uh, this is also along the lines of adoption. This is from Bitcoin.com. Um, this was posted a couple days ago. Uh, wealthy investors and family offices embrace Bitcoin following bank failures, says Swan Bitcoin executive. In 2023, three of the largest bank failures in the history of the United States occurred. Since then, affluent investors, family offices, and individuals with high net worth have been gravitating towards Bitcoin. This information was shared by Stephen Lupka, an executive at Swan Bitcoin, uh, during an interview with Michelle McCory, the lead anchor and editor-in-chief at Kitco News. The conversation took place at the Bitcoin 2023 conference held in Miami. Since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, we've seen a huge uptick, Lubka informed McCory. We've always had a slice of family office clients that have used the platform, but ever since SVB, that has massively increased. These people are taking large Bitcoin positions. Lubka emphasized that these investors have a keen interest and that they want to learn more. Swan's managing director further expressed that if any institutional segment is expected to be an early adopter, it is likely to be family offices due to their greater control over investing in alternative assets. Lubka told McCory that Bitcoin exhibited a positive response when the banks faced pressure. He also highlighted that the high net worth individuals and family offices approached Swan, expressing they were, quote, concerned. The executive mentioned that Swan caters to a diverse range of clients, but specified that for high net worth individuals, his firm is generally looking at 10 million on the individual side and as much as a billion on the family office side. Luca said that these investors are concerned about long-term stability of the financial system. He added, they want to own an asset that is outside of that system. Luca commented to McCory that investors and family offices perceive Bitcoin as a means of diversification. He, he emphasized that when Bitcoin experienced a surge during the bank contagion, it demonstrated its resilience as a hedge. That wouldn't have happened in the same way, I don't think, five years ago, Luca stated. He expressed confidence in Bitcoin reaching the six-figure range by the end of 2024, and he further suggested the possibility of a million-dollar Bitcoin by 2030. <laughs> Uh, price predictions. Um, well, this is good news, certainly from an adoption standpoint, but personally, I would much rather see uh, people on the lower income scale um, investing what they can, because you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin uh, to start, because uh, anybody can participate in this. It's not limited to, you know, just wealthy people, but um uh, it's a it's a lifeboat for uh, for folks if uh, if well if and when the financial system um, changes over which you know it's we don't know when it's just it's just a matter of time though uh, and um, you know it's outside the system which is uh, absolutely spot on um, where you want to have uh, some of your money. So uh, I'd like to see more people, again, on the lower end of the spectrum, you know, um, participating, but they can. Nothing's stopping them. So that's the good thing. The only thing really that stops people is education. And um, I guess that's why I do this podcast. All right, moving on. Uh, next article is from uh, Cointelegraph. This was uh, published on June 2nd. I thought this was kind of interesting. It's entitled, How to Access Bitcoin Network Data Without Advanced IT Skills. 
the Bitcoin network is home to a variety of data that can offer investors, academics, and fans useful insights. However, those without significant IT abilities might find it difficult to obtain this data. The good news is, is that anyone may explore Bitcoin network data without having substantial technical knowledge thanks to the user-friendly tools, platforms, and techniques that are readily available. This article will walk you through how to access Bitcoin network data through various mediums. The original software content client for Bitcoin, known as Bitcoin Core, keeps a public record of the complete Bitcoin blockchain. Everyone can download and use the database for free because the program is open source. A variety of data is available from Bitcoin Core, including transaction history, blocks, addresses, and more. The popular public database Blockstream Explorer provides free access to Bitcoin data. Blockstream Explorer, created by Blockstream, a pioneer in blockchain technology, offers a simple interface for exploring the blockchain of the Bitcoin network. Users can use Blockstream Explorer to look for particular transactions, read comprehensive details about blocks, addresses, and transactions, and monitor the status of Bitcoin confirmations. A number of features are available, such as transaction history, inputs and outputs, block information, and address balances. Additional features offered by Blockstream Explorer include access to the testnet for development and testing, as well as the ability to examine the mempool, which displays the pending transactions awaiting confirmation. The platform provides a straightforward user interface and extensive data for examining Bitcoin transactions and network activity, and it is made to be usable by both novice and experienced users. Individuals, programmers, and researchers frequently utilize it to investigate and research the Bitcoin blockchain. Cardiff University Bitcoin Database is a groundbreaking platform that allows users to access structured Bitcoin network data without requiring advanced IT skills. Qubid was developed in 2020 by Hossein Yahan Shalou, a lecturer in, fi in finance at Cardiff Business School, to make it easier for users to access the massive amount of data that makes up the Bitcoin network. With the complexity of formatting raw data into a useful format, is one of the key issues with publicly available Bitcoin network data. The problem is addressed by Qubit, which streamlines the data collection, cleaning, checking, and validation processes. Catering to academics, policymakers, and industry professionals, Qubit is a useful tool for research and training. Moreover, two data layers make up the platform. The first layer contains fundamental information about the Bitcoin network, such as the tables for block headers, transactions, and transaction details. Qubit offers a second layer that enables in-depth insights into blocks, transactions, addresses, and wallet activity with just the press of a button in order to improve data analysis and shorten calculation time. In addition to providing data services, Qubit also provides users with individualized counseling and specially designed solutions. Qubit's user-friendly interface and extensive data layers give people the freedom to study and use the data from the Bitcoin network for a variety of purposes and academic projects. A well-known Bitcoin wallet provider, blockchain.com, also provides a public blockchain explorer. Users can freely search and study the Bitcoin blockchain using its explorer, which offers details on transactions, blocks, and wallet addresses. 
Use Bitcoin API services like BlockCypher that provide straightforward endpoints that let you retrieve particular data from the Bitcoin network. You can retrieve information like transaction details or up-to-date network statistics if you have basic understanding of how to make HTTP queries. So again, these are all um, uh, interesting tools, and uh, if you haven't already uh, used them, I'd suggest you check it out. Okay, uh, next up is an article from Cointelegraph. This is um, also posted on June 2nd. Uh, we talked a little bit about Bitcoin mining profitability earlier in the podcast. So this goes into a bit more detail. Articles entitled Bitcoin Mining Firms Keep Building Despite Bitcoin Mining Profitability Slump. Despite a 44% decline in Bitcoin mining profitability over the last year, some Bitcoin mining companies have continued to build and increase production according to recent announcements. On June 1st, American Bitcoin mining firm CleanSpark announced that it had purchased 12,500 brand new AmpMiner S19XP units for $40 million. The deal worked out at $23 <clears throat> per terahash per second which is lower than the average market price. The news comes as Bitcoin mining difficulty reached an all-time high of over 50 trillion on June 1st, putting further pressure on miners. The network hash rate was also near its peak level at 395 exahash per second on May 30th. CleanSpark's purchase agreement stipulated that 6,000 machines are scheduled to be shipped by the manufacturer in June, and the remainder will be shipped in August. AmpMiner S19XP units have a hash rate of 141 terahash per second, with the combined purchase providing an additional total hash rate of 1.76 exahashes per second to its current 6.7 exahashes per second, Zach Bradford, CEO of CleanSpark, said. This purchase ensures that we are prepared to meet and potentially exceed our, tar our year-end target of 16 exahash per second. Clean Sparks Mining Farms are located in Georgia. According to its website, the firm has 67,700 mining machines in operation and has mined 2,395 Bitcoin year-to-date. The company has continued its expansion despite declining Bitcoin mining profitability, which has declined to 0.071 per terahash sec per second per day, down 44% over the past 12 months, and 82% since the crypto market peak in late 2021, according to Hashrate Index. In February, CleanSpark purchased 20,000 brand new AntMiner S19J Pro Plus units, and in April it added 45,000 S19XP ASIC rigs to its fleet. In other Recent company updates, BitFarms announced that it had mined 459 Bitcoin in May, increasing production by 6.5% year-on-year. A 47% year-over-year increase in our hash rate was offset by a 65% increase in network difficulty in the same period, said Chief Mining Officer Ben Gagnon. Cypher Mining announced a record production in May with 493 Bitcoin mined, the increases were due to the transaction fee spike during the BRC20 meme coin minting craze that peaked in early May. On May 31st, Compass Mining inked a deal with hosting provider Arthur Mining to open a new facility in Ohio. 
And again, mining is critical to maintaining the security of the network, uh, and uh, but it is a brutally competitive business. So uh, only the most efficient operators uh, with low cost of energy uh, are really able to be successful, especially in a bear market. Um, And then uh, last article is an opinion piece out of Bitcoin Magazine that I thought was interesting, uh, mostly because I've been involved in the real estate industry my entire career. So I thought this would be good to uh, check out. So uh, the article is entitled Breaking Barriers, How Bitcoin Can Transform the Real Estate Industry. Uh, this is an opinion editorial by Jenna Hill, a content marketing specialist with residential real estate brokerage Redfin. You may have heard about how you can use Bitcoin to buy a house, rent an apartment, or save your wealth in an inflation-resistant way to make a down payment. But beyond these examples, how else can Bitcoin transform the way real estate transactions work as a whole? From cutting out middlemen to creating new collateral opportunities, Bitcoin can transform the traditional real estate industry in ways we never imagined. For instance, imagine buying a house without the need for banks or intermediaries and completing the transaction within minutes instead of weeks. It may sound like a futuristic concept, but it's slowly becoming a reality. This article explores the exciting intersection of Bitcoin and real estate and delves into the potential implications for the future of the real estate market, whether you're a homeowner, investor, or simply curious about the latest advancements, read on to discover how Bitcoin is reshaping the landscape of real estate transactions. Real estate fraud continues to pose a threat to both buyers and sellers, with the FBI reporting over 11,700 victims in 2022 alone. However, Bitcoin has the potential to play a significant role in addressing traditional real estate fraud. Bitcoin transactions are secured by cryptography, and once completed are highly resistant to fraud. The cryptographic algorithms used in Bitcoin provide robust security measures against double spends, ensuring that transaction records on the blockchain remain tamper-proof and protected. This added layer of security significantly reduces the risk of fraudulent alterations to payment or property records, and because all parties involved in a Bitcoin transaction, including a home buyer, seller, real estate agent, and other relevant parties, in a real estate transaction would have access to the blockchain that can collectively validate the property ownership and transaction details. With Bitcoin, property ownership could also be verified through the world's most robust blockchain, which can serve as a comprehensive and auditable record of ownership transfers. The feature could help establish a clear chain of title, allowing buyers to ensure the legitimacy of the property's ownership history before making a purchase. By eliminating ambiguity and providing verified ownership records, Bitcoin can prevent title fraud, a scam whereby criminals sell properties they do not rightfully own. Buying a home is complicated enough, and it can get even more complicated when you have to communicate with several parties to facilitate the transaction. However, it doesn't have to be this way. Bitcoin is capable of facilitating secure digital real estate deals, which can eliminate the need for intermediaries like lawyers and bankers. Traditionally, multiple parties handle listings, payment transactions, and legal documentation, leading to complexity and additional costs. Bitcoin could theoretically take the place of the verification of, or payment services that these middlemen provide, streamlining the transaction experience. Buyers and sellers would benefit from reduced commissions and fees, 
usually charged by lawyers and banks. Additionally, cutting out intermediaries accelerates the home buying or selling process, which provides a more cost-effective, efficient, and competitive approach for both the buyer and the seller. Bitcoin has also opened up new opportunities in the luxury real estate market. High-end real estate properties such as mansions, penthouses, and vacation homes are increasingly being listed for sale in Bitcoin or other digital currencies. This provides an alternative payment option for high net worth individuals who may hold significant amounts of Bitcoin and would like to use it to invest in real estate. Additionally, the use of Bitcoin in luxury real estate can attract international buyers as it offers a faster and more secure cross-border transaction option compared to traditional overseas buying methods. Newly minted Bitcoin millionaires and billionaires are showing a love for real estate, flooding the luxury market and driving some of the most expensive transactions over the past several years. Among the most notable include Olaf Carson Wee, the first employee of Coinbase, and the founder of Polychain Capital, who bought a mansion in Hollywood Hills for $28.5 million, and Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, who bought a $133 million estate in Bel Air, California. Armstrong's massive purchase still ranks in the top five most expensive single-family homes ever sold in the Los Angeles area. One of the most intriguing developments in the real estate industry is the ability to purchase homes using Bitcoin. While many Bitcoin users prefer to hold on to their Bitcoin as a long-term investment, others choose to realize the distinct advantages that Bitcoin offers payments offer over fiat ones. In fact, a Texas startup recently made headlines by allowing Texans to buy homes with Bitcoin. Buyers can choose to pay in dollars or their Bitcoin equivalent for a property, highlighting the growing acceptance of Bitcoin as a legitimate form of payment in the real estate market. Bitcoin could also be used as a new form of collateral in real estate transactions. According to the IRS, Bitcoin holdings are considered property. At many banks, borrowers can use their holdings as collateral to secure loans for property investments, providing an alternative financing option for real estate purchases or developments. This can be particularly useful for investors who hold significant amounts of Bitcoin but don't want to sell their holdings to finance a real estate transaction. Lenders, on the other hand, can benefit from a wider addressable market when accepting cryptocurrency as collateral. So what does the future look like? As Bitcoin continues to draw attention, regulatory frameworks are likely to evolve. Governments and regulatory bodies around the world are grappling with the implications of Bitcoin in real estate, including issues related to property rights, taxation, and anti-money laundering regulations. The future could see increased regulation and standardization, which could provide more stability and confidence to buyers, sellers, and investors. And uh, yeah, the, the, the money laundering thing is uh, always an interesting one. Um, but uh, uh, in fact, real estate has historically been, uh, you know, at least until recently, uh, you know, uh, an easy way to launder money because you take cash and buy real estate and then sell the real estate and then the money's clean. Uh, governments, of course, made it much harder now because you have to prove where you get all the money from that you're buying real estate. Uh, with. But again, I'm sure criminals have just gotten more, um, they, they just understand the rules and then they're, um, <laughs> they're able to structure their transaction in a way that uh, doesn't hit any alarm bells. But uh, certainly a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of middle middlemen involved in a real estate transaction. You know, you've got, you know, escrow and you've got lawyers and you've got agents and 
um, if you could simply, uh, you know, do a Bitcoin smart contract uh, that gets, you know, where you put the money that you're buying and then the transaction gets confirmed in 10 minutes and uh, it's on the blockchain that uh, you own this property and the titles, you know, basically on there, that would be um, fantastic. And uh, it would actually make it real estate a lot more liquid because you could, you could, you know, literally transact peer to peer without, uh, without any, um, in a very short period of time at a very low cost. But of course it would uh, obliterate uh, the industry. <laughs> so that's the problem with disruptive technology. So, uh, but anyway, it's definitely uh, some interesting thoughts in here. And then finally, just wanted to uh, encourage you to check out this week's blog post entitled Bitcoin Empowering Change and Building a Financial Future on my Substack. I will include a link in the show notes to that. And with that, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast this week. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can also follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My handle's at Nick Reichert. Uh, and um, I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.